We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This is Jim Urio sitting in for Dan. And our next guest is Joachim Book, who's a visiting scholar at the American Institute for Economic Research. He wrote a couple different articles. That, and this, again, this, I'm going to have a lot more fun with this than some of the other topics we talk about just because this is right up my alley. And uh, one of the articles I liked was when financial, market, uh, when financial Markets Bubble, There's Something for Everyone, and The Difference Between Copper and Cucumbers. And I'd like to get them both. So are you, are you contending that we are, what stage of bubble creation are we in right now and why is this happening? Oh, wow. Thank you. First of all, thanks a lot for having me on the show. Um, this is the million dollar question, right? Like, who knows? Yeah, why don't we get right to <laughs> um, it, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, if I, if, if, I, if I had an answer to the question, I wouldn't tell you. I would just play the market, right? <laughs> like, I would take your money and then I would charge you an exorbitant fee and I'll, I'll play the market. So, I mean, this is a problem that, that every researcher in finance is facing, that we don't really know where we are. And it's very, very, very hard to tell that there is a bubble until after it collapses. Um, so that's sort of the, the conundrum that we're in. And we're always sort of talking about, you know, is this the uh, whatever bubble? Is this the dot-com bubble again? Is this the South Sea bubble again? Are these tulips? You know, like this is the kind of conversation that we have. And it's almost impossible to tell. Even in hindsight, it's really, really hard to tell. No, but I'm going to push back for real quick on this, is that my guess is when the real estate bubble was inflating, you knew it was inflating. We just didn't know when it was going to end. And it went for years and years longer than I thought it would. That was an obvious bubble, wasn't it? Well, I, I don't know. Like, so we quickly get back to the, to the definitional problem of a bubble. Like, generally, we talk about something like, uh, you know, an asset whose price is um, way above its fundamental value. But what's the fundamental value of an asset? It's like, well, we can do some kind of like discounted cash flow analysis of a company or that kind of thing. Um, but then it's like, well, okay, in, in a massive growth phase of uh, of a new a new company, what's the price? Like, you know, in, in 1999, what was the price of Amazon? What was the correct price of Amazon? Um, and you could, you could argue that that was a bubble, but had you bought Amazon at the peak of its bubble in the dot-com era, you would have made tons and tons and tons of money until today. So that would just have been like an, an instance of you, you know, picking a bubble, but you were too early. What was the, what was the price of, what, what was the correct price of Netflix or correct value of Netflix 10 years ago? Um, how are you going to know? Right. You know, so, so, so houses is a slightly, slightly harder, right? Because we don't really have like cash flows for houses. It's just like the value of the people who own them, that they, that the value that they place on them and their ability to service the mortgage. It's like, okay, interest rates have been falling. Um, uh, the Fed is doing monetary policy. Okay, so asset prices should be higher, but how much higher? Um, we have this new technology that allows us to like diversify risk um, through uh, through lending. So maybe that makes it easier to to carry uh, a bunch of assets, and it's easier for for a lot of people to um, uh, to service the mortgages. It's not quite clear. 
And I mean, if people at the time obviously realized that it was a bubble, it wouldn't, the bubble would collapse right away. And I, I, again, I love this conversation, respect everything you're saying, but that's one of the things I disagree with is that when a bubble takes 15 years to, to inflate, there's these moments that are like, oh, this is a bubble, I shouldn't get involved. And then a year later, you're like, yeah, I'm an idiot for not getting involved. And then it starts drawing right? in the dumb money. Yeah. And I find that interesting. Uh, you know, Robert Schiller, I think, he, I think he actually won a Nobel Prize for his definition of yeah, bubbles. Yeah, yeah. And I, I spoke to him, and yes, I'm not above name dropping. And I spoke to him, and I said to him, and I want to hear your take on this, too. To me, the two bubbles that we've seen in, in my lifetime, the tech, tech stocks and the real estate, at the, near the end of it, it was uh, people who were leveraged up who couldn't – the, the last people in – were the people that, and you know, Thanksgiving dinner was punctuated by people talking to you about how they bought a, a couple properties here and were planning on redoing them and, and selling them. Is it mm, is mm, the, a bubble mm. have to necessarily be dumb money coming in at the end and leveraging up? Yeah, I guess so. Like at some point, like that's that's one of the the, the the historical or traditional thing that we say. You know, like when your barber or your taxi driver is giving you stock right. tips, it's time to get out. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. yeah maybe. Yeah. Um, so, but but it's also not true. Like like you say, this was if 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 we call the housing bubble a bubble, um, which I'm happy to do, then it was inflating for years and years and years. And at some point, like I have this I have this quote from from somebody in the in the 1700s, a banker in the 1700s before he he buys. Um, I think it's in the spring of, of 1720 when he buys South Sea stock, you know, which looks like a bubble. It basically has the the price movement of of, of Bitcoin in the last few like six months or so. Um, and he, he writes to his broker and he says something to the tune of, you know, when the world has gone mad, we have to emulate them in some way. Uh, so it's like, well, he's still he's just sitting on money. He has to do something. Even if he thinks this is absolutely crazy and this is absolutely a bubble, what's he going to do? Yes, right. <laughs> it's at like, some point, he has to. Yeah. You can't stand in front of the thundering herd and tell them they're all wrong. That's the, that's the right metaphor, right? isn't it? Yeah. What about, so I want to talk about wealth inequality real quick because my contention has been that the two bubbles we've seen starts drawing in all the, the, the smart money and the wealthy are getting in at the beginning. The bubble starts to inflate. It draws in the middle money. Then it starts to draw in the people who can least afford to lose that money. Then it implodes. And then assets are, are lying like, you know, driftwood around where the rich people come back in and start scooping those things back up. My question is, do you think bubble creation and the you know, ensuing bubble bust cycle is that a huge um factor in wealth inequality that they all talk about huh this is hard i um i don't know um, oh, that, that, a lot of smarter people oh yeah i, I think <laughs> a that... lot smarter people than me are doing that um <laughs> yeah so here's the, that, no, then a, so, what, then a, no you got some no, so, so like a lot smarter people than me are doing this and they have like inconclusive answers. So on the one hand, of course, when central banks are inflating money as much as they do and they keep interest rates very, very low, that increases asset prices. And that's what we've seen in the last 10, 20, even 30 years, if you want. Um, so then you could argue that, you know, the, who, who are the people who, who own assets? Well, generally rich people. Um, uh, the poor have net wealth of zero or less, so they don't really benefit from that. But then again, they do have as, uh, pension savings, right? And they benefit from that in some sense. And in, I, I remember Ben Bernanke making this argument. Insofar as the policy works, i.e. that it gets the economy back on track, then the poor who otherwise would have lost their jobs, they now get employed and they can earn wages. And if you go from zero wages being unemployed or on whatever benefit you're on, 
to actually having a job, that's a massive boost from, uh, for somebody at the low end of the spectrum, which might actually lower inequality overall because you know, you're at the very, very base of the, of the, of the distribution and you're, you're massively increasing their incomes. Uh, so even though it looks like you're increasing wealth inequality, maybe you are actually on net reducing it. And I'm kind of like, I, I don't know the answer to this question, um, but I'm not, I don't think it's a clear, like, obviously this is happening one way or the other. No, but what it sounds like what you're saying, though, is when monetary policy and, and assets are inflated in the short and even, even really in the medium term, they can do great good, which I don't think I would ever push back on that at all. What I was leaning more towards just persistent, inorganically low rates over long periods of time. And by the way, that, so my question is, is that what we're seeing since the 80s? Have interest rates just been kept too low for too long? Is that why we inflate bubbles? I, I mean, no, we have yes and no. Again, it's really hard to tell. Like we've had bubbles for much longer than central banks have been con- being, been in control of our economies and our financial markets. Um, but we've also had secularly declining interest rates since basically the 1400s. You know, if you plot out real interest rates from very, very long time periods, uh, interest rates have just been falling and falling and falling. Um, so it's also not quite clear like, are, are, are the central banks even having an effect or would we have been, at, you know, basically real interest rates of zero even without them? So it's like, what's the counterfactual here? Like, I, I, I kind of struggle with these questions and they're really interesting. Um, so, so, yeah, for, for sure, like something is happening to these markets. But is it a bubble? Is it going to last? When is it going to end? Well, these are the million-dollar questions that nobody really knows how to answer. Well, we got to, though. <laughs> is, this, is, this, is what you've seen in equity markets over the last year, do you um, attribute that to a, a genuine – okay, when we had the 36% drop in March, that seemed perfectly reasonable. We were coming into just an awful, yeah. awful economic time. Since then, you know, March 23rd was the day the Fed said unlimited QE, and we only have 50 seconds for, before we have to take a break. But what kind of credit are you giving to the Fed for boosting asset prices up? Um, part, at least part. Um, but I think it was also sort of like a mania or everyone was afraid or is this the end of the end of the world kind of thing. But then like when we gathered our senses and realized that this is basically just the last year, then it's like, well, then asset prices shouldn't go down that much. So it's like even without the Fed stimulus, I think, I think that kind of push, not pushback, that kind of return would have, would have happened or something similar to it. Okay. When we After we take uh, this break, we're going to come back and talk about the article I enjoyed, The Difference Between Copper and Cucumbers, which uh, I think is going to be interesting for a lot of people. But uh, this is the Dan Prof Show. Uh, we're speaking with Joachim Book. Uh, I said that wrong, but I'll say it right the next time, I swear to God. Thank you for joining us. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show this is jim uriel sitting in for dan and we're speaking to joaquin book who's a visiting scholar at the american institute for economic research um, I, I want to go to an article you wrote called The Difference Between Copper and Cucumbers. And I assumed I, I read it and I like it as the point that just, you know, different factors move the prices of different things. Correct. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is sort of like a, a playful article 
where I am trying to investigate the concept of like sustainability and renewable and materials, the, the kind of like the green, the buzzwords of the green new economy, if you wish. Um, and here I am most certainly not an expert and I'm not a physicist and there are so many things that can go wrong in, in this place. So it's like a ton, a ton of, 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 of qualifications. Um, but as far as I understand, I haven't made a, a massive error. What I'm trying to, this is coming from sort of like an observation that, you know, you're being outside when it's cold outside and the U.S. has experienced some of that in the recent weeks, if I understand correctly. Like you have this amazing protection of, you know, materials and like layers of clothes and stuff that you could never have made on your own, um, which makes it easier for you to sort of be outside. Um, but what I wanted to get at in this, this is sort of like the second part of, the, of this argument. The, the article that you mentioned is sort of the second part of that article when I'm trying to figure out like what does it mean to be renewable? Like what, what, is, what does the concept entail, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm trying to, to, to dabble with this, this question because there's nothing about human existence that's renewable. Everything we do is like consuming things. That's how we exist. Um, and I think part of this, this sort of green story is that humans affecting nature in any shape or form is bad. And I want to push back against that because I, it's like, I like humans. I'm, I'm happy that humans can survive and they can flourish. And if that means that you push against nature, then so be it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to like investigate. So I, so I picked these like commodities, you know, copper and, and cucumber because it kind of sounds silly, but it also makes the point very, very eloquently. And we think of, of copper as this like, Scarce, limited, non-renewable resource that's in the Earth's crust. Now we have to like waste a lot of energy and machinery and labor to get out of the Earth's crust, and it's going to run out. And on the other hand, we have renewables like a cucumber that we can just grow. Um, and if when we get it sunlight through sunlight and photosynthesis, we just get a plant that we can eat um, or a fruit of a plant that we can eat. Um, so it's clearly renewable, and we can keep doing that without sort of like Harming, harming the planet or uh, uh, running out of, um, of space. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to twi- twitch, switch both of these um, propositions, and I'm trying to say something very counterintuitive, which is that non-renewable resources, like copper, don't ever run out. And that's really weird. That's a really weird statement to sort of wrap your head around. Um, but let me illustrate it with oil for just a second. In, in 1944, we had something like 51 billion barrels of oil. They weren't sitting in a warehouse, but they were like inaccessible wells or like uh, formations in the earth that we know where to find them. And then over the like, next 75 years or so, then we used a ton of it. You know, we burned it in our cars, we drove around, we flew airplanes, we heated our homes. And then you think, okay, so today we have, must have less than the 51 billion or barrels of oil that we had in, in 1944. Wrong. We have... Uh, over 1,700 billion barrels of oil. That, that's 34 times as much. And you're like, how can we have used all this oil and have way more than we started with? And for the simple mechanism that we just found more, you know, we dug more out of the ground. It's like, okay, um, that's strange. Uh, back to the, to the copper version. So, so oil is consumed, so it sort of disappears when you're done with it, or it goes up into the atmosphere when it's combusted. But copper, on the other hand, oh, it's even stranger, because every single ounce of copper that we ever dug out of the, uh, of the Earth's crust is still with us. And now it gets tricky. How is it a non-renewable resource if we still have all of it here? And what I'm saying is that all the stuff that we ever used copper for, statues or porcelain or anything like that, we can melt it down and make it into, turn it into something else. 
Um, so we use it in, you know, electricity lines or um, houses or other kinds of things like other metals. And if we want to, we can just like turn it back into something else because copper doesn't really de degenerate when you reuse it. So you can keep reusing it forever. And that's very weird. Um, and here, here's the, 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 the last sort of like comparison that I'm trying to make between copper and cucumber. It's like when I eat a cucumber, which is what we do with cucumbers, <laughs> and this is where it gets playful and silly, it, it's like irrevocably taken apart in my stomach. There is no process that we know of to put the atoms back together into a cucumber. It, it's a one-way process. It's done. Um, whereas the copper, we can turn it into whatever we want, and we can reuse it as much as we want. Right. So, no, and I like this a lot, but cucumbers is funny because I'm I'm a uh, amateur gardener, and the only thing I can actually grow is cucumbers. So I can I can replace those cucumbers, but I agree that the original cucumber will never be back. Yeah, we yeah. So that's the point. Right? We can grow more of them. That's the renewable argument of most things that are renewable. But but but, but what I'm trying to say is that just like with the cucumber we can apply resources to get us more copper from the ground. If we need more copper than the, than the, than the copper we have in, in, in all kinds of, of items and stuff, we can dig more of them out of the mines in Chile and Mexico and Indonesia. You know, like, right, and even out of the copper piping in people's homes, all we have to do is if the price of copper gets so high, it, you know, the people will cut the copper pipes out, replace them with PVC and bring them right to your door. I mean, I, I completely get that, too. I would like to get back to the oil thing, too. Now, you, you made the mention of oil being 17,000, uh, whatever, gallon, or 17 million gallons. I don't know exactly what you said. But the reality of it is, is that we all know intuitively that there is a finite amount of oil. We just don't know what it is yet. Isn't that a difference? So this is exactly right, but it, it's sort of like not relevant and precisely for the reasons that we talked about before. Um, for, for, for materials like copper, we can reuse copper that we've used. So we're never going to run out of copper, regardless of how much right. or there's left in, in, in the Earth's crust, precisely because, you know, the reasons of substitution and price that you mentioned. Oil is different, right? Because you can't reuse the oil that we have. So far, at least, we haven't figured out a way to, re to, to, uh, to effectively bring the, the carbon dioxide from, uh, from the air into uh, something that we can burn again or can combust again, as far as I understand. Um, so that's all you different. But we keep finding more, and there's no indication anywhere that we're you know, running out of, of, of oil on the planet. Like, it's, it's a very different story that we talk about in, um, in climate change these days, which is the impact that, that the burning of oil is going to have on the planet. Like in the 70s and the 80s, we were really afraid of running out of oil, but now we're afraid of using too much of it. So that's the opposite. That's the opposite conundrum, if you were to uh, the opposite problem that we had in the 70s and the 80s. Um, that's slightly different. Um, maybe there is a, like a physical finite limit somewhere for, for all the oil or, 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 or uh, fossil fuels that we ever find on planet Earth. That's possible, but we're nowhere near that one. And even if we were approaching it, we can still ration it with the price system uh, of, of, of all the 1,700 billion barrels that we now have. Like, yes. Even yeah. if tomorrow we, re we ran out, you know, it's like somehow we figured out, we screened the entire planet and we figured out that there's not an ounce more than the 1,700 barrels of, billion barrels of oil that we now have, then the price, is, price of oil is probably going to go up very high and we would ration it, you know? Love, like we would yeah. substitute things. Yeah, the free People market. People drive less. Right, the free market it, taking yeah, care of it. Yeah, market. No, I, and I agree with that. That's, yeah. that's interesting. I like the way you tied it up and, and gave the takeaway. I wish we could talk longer on it, but unfortunately we have a hard out here. But thank you very much for joining us. Um, that's been a fun conversation. It was Joachim Book, 
Um, thank you for joining the Dan Prof Show. Pleasure to be with you. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show.